Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got John Farthing, Peter Johnson, Andy Chandler, and I'm Hazel Burton. On the show today we've got our film buff or film bluff quiz. Then we've got a debate. We're going to be talking about our favourite Batman portrayals. And we're going to wrap things up with a quiz from John. Yep, I have been delving into the murky corners of the internet as is my want, and I brought some treats back for you all. Yay! (laughs) So, let's start the show. Film buff or film bluff? What happens here is we've all got three facts, but we've made one of them up, so it's the rest of our jobs to try and work out which fact is the bluff. John, would I go first? Yes, I have no theme this week. No theme. So I have for you three unrelated movie facts, one of which is fresh from my victim. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Thanks for that. (laughs) Fact number one. John Travolta was originally cast in the Bruce Willis role in The Sixth Sense, but turned down the part because he didn't believe in ghosts and felt he couldn't portray a man who did realistically. I, isn't he supposed to be an actor? <laughs> he felt he couldn't portray something he didn't believe in. <laughs> Number two. The makeup for How the Grinch Stole Christmas was so painful that Jim Carrey needed torture endurance training from a member of the CIA <laughs> to enable him to sit whilst the makeup was put on. <laughs> needed or instructed by the director? Needed. <laughs> okay. I would imagine the director wanted to talk yeah. to him during that film. We're all and, made up. And finally, number three. The film Cannibal Holocaust is a found footage film in which the cast meet a grisly end due to some cannibalistic fun. <laughs> fun. The film was prosecuted for the murder of the actors because it was so realistic that the director had to appear in court with the actors to prove they were still alive. I'm pretty sure that's true because I think I've heard that before. Okay, I was thinking that was a John one because... I know it sounded like a John one, but I think that's true. Okay. I'm going to bow out of this one because I know two true facts Mm. from there. So Mm. I'm just going to leave it to you guys. Okay, all right. Okay. So John Travolta not being an actor and uh, Jim Carrey getting torture endurance from the CIA... I think maybe the more important point to take from number one is John Travolta not believing in ghosts. He's a Scientologist. He believes in thetans. Those are kind of ghosts, aren't they? They, they are they negative aliens? spirits or aliens that attach to the body. So I think he was actually part of his Scientology beliefs because he believed that these spirits were thetans and aliens. Or it would be offensive almost if they were ghosts. Mm. Okay. So he couldn't portray a ghost because he didn't believe in them, but he could portray Nick Cage. Yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> one counter argument against that one being true is the likelihood if John was thinking, okay, not Bruce Willis, who am I going to pick instead? Yeah. There's a link between yes. Bruce Willis and John Travolta. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes me wonder if he's made it up. They're both bald. No, it's um, Planet Hollywood, isn't it? Well, Pulp they... Fiction as well. Oh, Pulp Fiction, yeah. No, Planet Hollywood was Bruce Willis, Stallone and Schwarzenegger. 
then never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and Lady Bruce Willis, whose name I forgot, Demi Moore, I believe, Demi was Moore. involved. Um, Jackie Chan in Asian territories. Mm-hmm. Oh. Torture training. I mean, the psychological thing of how you withstand that stuff. Mm-hmm. But really, are you going to make the makeup that painful? The makeup took eight and a half hours to apply. Um, so I think it was to start with. Typically, what happens is they normally yeah. get that down to about a half to two thirds by the end of the shoot. Apparently, after the first day of filming, he went and smashed his trailer up and said, "I can't cope with this. I can't do this. I'm quitting the film." Mm-hmm. And Ron Howard paid for a CIA torture expert to come in and teach him how to withstand torture. It sounds ludicrous, but there's something honest in there. Uh-huh. My inclination is to go for the first one as the bluff. Okay, you go for that. I'll go for the makeup. Okay. The John Travolta is a lie. Mm. Uh-huh. You knew that, Andy. Oh, yeah, I definitely knew that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cannibal Holocaust is a, a 1970s horror film. It was banned in this country for a long time. In part because although they didn't kill people, they did kill animals because it was cheaper than using special effects. But Cannibal Holocaust is a really, really influential film. It's one of the first of the found footage movies. So things like Blair Witch and other films of that ilk owe an awful lot to it. The premise is that people go to the cannibal village somewhere in Africa and they find these films and then they go back and they watch the film, which then becomes the film that we're watching. So it's what happened to this previous expedition. And they play a lot with the complicity of the audience in watching these sort of things. So you start off with some really interesting footage where they're watching a documentary where it is what was generally believed to be real life people being shot. So almost like snuff footage to make you say, okay, what you're watching is real. But that footage itself was actually fake. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of interplay of what is real and what is fake it also relates to a lot of things like funny games where the audience is complicit in the violence. It's, it's so horrible. Why are you watching this? Why do you find this entertaining? And then sort of pulling the rug under you a little bit. So despite it being, you know, a real nasty piece of 70s Italian exploitation with some really, the animal cruelty is unforgivable, but there's also some scenes of a sexual nature in there that just don't belong in a film. As a piece of cinema history, as a piece of horror history, it's, Something that's not well known, but it's actually incredibly influential. Would you recommend it as a date movie? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've taken many women there on their first and last dates to see that film. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a better film than The Sixth Sense. And it's, but I would rather uh, watch that than How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Well, that's obvious. The Grinch Steals Christmas? Yes. Spoilers, John. Oh, sorry. It's but then the his title. heart grows two sizes. Christy. Which in real life really we go see a fucking doctor because it's, <laughs> it's not a good thing. Okay, so my film buff or film bluff is about the friendship between Sir Ian McKellen and Sir Patrick Stewart. Oh. So, number one, McKellen and Stewart began their close friendship while shooting the first X-Men film. After X-Men The Last Stand wrapped, the pair marked the occasion by getting tattoos together. So McKellen got a, a stylized M for Magneto on his shoulder, and Stuart got an X for Xavier on his buttock. Number two, McKellen married Stuart in 2013. Uh, More specifically, <laughs> he became an ordained minister of the Universal Life Church in order to officiate Stuart's marriage to the jazz singer Sonny Ozell. Number three, 
McKellen participated in the worldwide Women's March protest after the election of Donald Trump, and he carried a placard with the famous image of face-palming Stuart as Captain Picard. I, I think the first one, I don't believe they became friends then. Now, whether it's just a badly phrased question or not, because, I mean, they were both in the RSC for years mm-hmm. before that. So I think it's much more like they were friends for ages. I've heard that while they've both been in the RSC for ages, they've fairly recently, last five years or mm. so, uh, did, did a play together and it was touted as only the second time they've ever been on stage together. So I can definitely mm. believe that they've been uh, only became friends during X-Men. Yeah. I, I, went, I went to see that play. It was, uh, it was very good. It was, um, oh, fuck, what was the name of it? It was so good, I can't remember. It was the Harold Pinter play. Mm-hmm. Did you see any tattoos? Um, I didn't, and I tried to find out whether the Patrick Stewart tattoo thing was true, and now I'm banned from the Theatre of Honour. <laughs> <laughs> I did bounce on in McKellen's knee once. Talk more about that, this, Peter. This is true. So, uh, yeah, when I was 13, I understudied for the Royal Shakespeare Company and when they did the first tour, and they came and played in Newcastle. I auditioned for Trevor Nunn and got the part of the understudy in that. So I, ne- I never actually went on stage during the run of the play, but it was still kind of cool. And I did get to rehearse with Ian McKellen. And oh, you bounced on his knee. I did. Probably you, the mistake you made there was you got an X tattooed on your ass. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they've known each other a lot longer. I've heard the story about them getting matching tattoos, but I can't believe they were not friends pre-X-Men. Uh, are all parts of your question part of your bluff? Yeah. Is it possible one part's true and the other no, part isn't? they're either completely true or completely false. Okay. Um, he definitely did marry Patrick Stewart to the jazz singer lady. I recall that being on the news. What was the last one? So this is uh, Sir Ian McKellen protesting in oh, the Women's March. Yes, that is, Trump with the, that is oh, also true, I think. With the Captain Picard face-palming image. That's a bit too cute, isn't it? Would he really have done that? Um, yeah. I remember him being on a march. I don't remember specifically that picture. I thought, oh, that's a bit cute. Well, there you go then. I can't imagine Patrick Stewart get the next tattooed on his butt cheek. Try really hard, you might enjoy <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine it. Okay, so decision time. So I was just imagining. <laughs> uh, what are we going to pick? I'm going to go for the first one being a bluff. I think they knew each other before. Yeah, I'm still not sure whether it's on the phrase in the question, but I'm going to pick that one too. I'm going to pick that one as well, but I think it's the tattoo thing for me. I'm not sure they did that. The bluff is number one. Yes, they <laughs> don't have matching tattoos. That's completely true. So Ian McKellen does have a Elvish tattoo of the number nine, which he got with mm, the Lord of the Rings. Right. I thought he said he has an Elvis tattoo. An Elvis tattoo. <laughs> Elvish tattoo. It's not very good. It's just Elvish. <laughs> <laughs> I had a memory of him having a film-based tattoo, which is yeah. why I was pausing on that one a little bit. Yeah, mm. so all of the members of the Fellowship, apart from John Rhys-Davies, got uh, tattoos of the number nine in Elvish. John Rhys-Davies, what a shit, eh? Oh, recently he has come to light as being a massive bigot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Have you not seen it on Question Time? No. He, re- he shouts down, is it the leader of the Green Party? Yeah. He- he's like, just be quiet, woman! <sighs> He's very, very Brexity and uh, mm-hmm. try really, really patronising. It was pretty horrible to watch. Oh dear. Always sad when you see that mask slip on somebody who you previously kind of respected. Not that much. Not that much, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when Hitler did that stuff, I was like, oh, <laughs> I 
Oh, he's let us all down. He let us all down. <laughs> so, Hazel, what was it like playing Hitler the other night? <laughs> um, this wasn't by choice, I need to stress. <laughs> so, John very kindly asked me to guest with them for an improv gig in Newcastle. And one of the final games that we did is a game called Party Quirks, where somebody hosts a party and before that has to go out of the room and the audience gives the rest of the players quirks that they have to try and kind of give clues to the uh, host of the party. And the quirk that I got was Hitler, who's afraid of Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> of course he is. Which I so <laughs> rarely get the chance to play. So it was nice to have the opportunity. So uh, yeah, Pef did come up to me afterwards and said, um, you toned down Hitler, which is <laughs> quite You made him more socially acceptable. Subtle yeah. Hitler. Yeah, subtle Hitler. So it was like... Which is somehow more dangerous. Mm. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Peter. I have three facts. The director of the John Wick movies doubled for Brandon Lee in 1993 after he died during the filming of The Crow. Mm-hmm. And this is complicated, so strap in. Endgame is topping the all-time box office charts. But if you adjust for average ticket prices, it's a very different story. It's still only the 36th most successful movie ever. If you adjust for average ticket prices, the Rocky Horror Picture Show has made more money than Rocky. And, until 2017's Wonder Woman, directed by Patty Jenkins, the most successful movie directed solely by a woman was Mamma Mia in 2008. Here we go again. Explain what you mean by an average ticket price. <laughs> okay, so this is kind of like the retail price index. So you're adjusting for inflation, mm-hmm. but the way they're measuring inflation is purely by looking at the average ticket prices. So if you adjust for inflation, gone with the wind is, is the most successful yeah. football time. By a long way. I mean, it's easily double end game. But that's also a time when more people go into the movies as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we have ways of appreciating movies in lots of different ways at lots of different times. These experiences weren't available in the thirties or whatever. Something like Gone with the Wind as well will have gone to the cinema over and over again Mm. until the eighties, really, potentially. Was the question whether Endgame was the thirty-sixth? That was just background. So the question was: if you do a similar thing and adjust for ticket prices, the Rocky Horror Picture Show has made more money than Rocky. Adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Okay. Number one was the Crow. Now the the John Wick movies. Sure, I have. I directed by the guy who was kind of a stuntman on the Matrix films. Yeah. So he definitely is a stuntman turned director. So it would make sense that he was the the Brandon Lee stunt double. Does he have a name? Chad something. He does, but I can't remember what it is. Chad to... Lebeski. Oh, if it's Chad Lebeski, definitely. Yeah. That's got to be true. <laughs> oh, something that sounds vaguely like that. I think I might have heard that when... Um... Because obviously Keanu Reeves is on the interview circuit at the moment promoting John Wick 3. I learned that um, Keanu Reeves is one of those Shakespeare disbelievers, so he doesn't believe that Shakespeare wrote his own plays. Really? I don't believe that Keanu Reeves writes his own films? (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, And the third one was that until Wonder Woman, the most successful movie directed solely by a woman was Mamma Mia in 2008. Is that in terms of box office returns? Yes, just on little money, money across the counter. Or... No. So Mamma Mia is a very popular DVD purchase. I don't know about cinema, but wouldn't Point Break with Catherine Bigelow be more than that? Point Break wasn't earlier, a isn't massive... I think it was massive over here, mm. but not so much in America. Yeah, you I mean, have isn't a Isn't ABBA there. quite worldwide? Mm-hmm. 
It is, but yeah. um, it took 10 years to make a sequel, so you think if it was a massive hit, it would That's be... That's because everyone tried to talk them out of it. <laughs> they used all the good songs in the first one, didn't they? They, did they used all the good songs in the title of the first one. <laughs> Um, I, I can't think, and this is to my great shame, I can't think of a more successful film directed solely by a woman. Once you get past Catherine Bigelow, you're looking at things like Mary Harron with American Psycho. Um, Monster was directed by a woman, yes, wasn't there? It was, and that was yeah. that was a big hit. But I'm not. Was it? That was, was no, that's Patty hit. Jenkins, wasn't it? Monster. So that was Patty Jenkins yeah. with Wonder Woman. It's the same person. It won lots of Oscars, but I don't know if it was a big hit. Mm. I think that's probably true, which by a process of elimination makes the Rocky Horror Show Rocky won. Yeah. What you haven't asked is what years those two movies were. Rocky Horror Show and Rocky were very close to each other. 70s. Mm -hmm. Rocky was 76. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. So I don't think inflation would be a big deal. But The other one was 75. Right. Rocky Horror Show, again... Are we talking about initial release or are we talking about the amount of money that it's brought I'm in? going on the box office mojo charts. Mm. Rocky Horror Show played for years in one cinema in Los Angeles. Yeah, but uh, how does that compare to 4,000 screens that you release a modern movie on? A modern movie again, but we're talking about Rocky won't be released on 4,000 screens. It will be released on a couple of hundred and had a long run. So off, they all make sense, you little shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I am for once, I am completely flummoxed. Um, I'm going to go possibly that you're being clever. I like the way you always <laughs> express doubt whenever the idea I might be clever comes up. And that you are trying to flummox us with the fact that we would know that John Wick was directed by a stuntman but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same stuntman yeah. that was Brandon Lee's double. Okay. So I am going to go for that being the bluff. I am going to go for the third one, just because I don't think Mamma Mia was that successful at the box office. This is going to be a massive embarrassment if it is. But um, I, f I have a feeling there was something after that. I'm going to go for number one. It's very believable, but I think with John Wick being out now or soon, it's something that might have been on your mind. You might have um, made that up. Uh, in the same way that Rocky Horror has played and played and played in lots of different places, I think Mamma Mia might have had a lot of reruns for karaoke versions and sing-along versions. Um, so I think that might have helped its, its total gross. So I think two and three buy the same logic together. I'm going to go with true and one as a lie. Okay. The actual wrong one is number three. Ah. Mamma Mia was the previous record holder in 2008. There were a few films co-directed by women, but the last record holder directed solely by a woman is Kung Fu Panda 2. Strangely, <laughs> <laughs> of course. It didn't come to mind that yeah. one. <laughs> how, how could you forget? Yeah. Yeah, Rocky Horror, even though they're only a year apart, actually, if you look at the grocers, Rocky wins. So they must have been very close then. Yes, they are pretty close. Yeah. yeah. So if Endgame is down in the 30s, when you look at the adjusted prices, how many do you know of the top five? Okay, number one I know is Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Star Wars is up there, isn't it? Star uh, Wars is number two. Yeah. Titanic. Titanic is number five. Mm. Please don't tell me it's Avatar. It is not Avatar. Thank Christ. Is the Phantom Menace up there? Nope. Force Awakens? Nope. Okay, so we've got three, but we've got the three that are the fairly easy three. So it's the two less expected ones, maybe. Mm. Jurassic Park? Uh, no. 
Jaws? No. Jurassic Park's the closest. Mm-hmm. E.T.? Yes. Good. So you've got four now. There's only one left. And it got mentioned in either the last podcast or the podcast before it. Mary Poppins? It got mentioned at that point. The sound of music. It is the sound of music, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Andy, what have you got? Yeah, mine is on the Starship Enterprise from the famous sci-fi franchise, Star, Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> one of those two. They're, they're very much the same, aren't they? Number one, originally the Enterprise was going to land on various planets on the show, but the plan was scrapped because they didn't have the money to build all the necessary expensive sets. Plan B was to use shuttles, but when filming began, the full-size shooting model wasn't ready, and so the famous transporter of Beam Me Up Scotty fame was never part of the original plan and was only invented as a solution to these problems. Number two, a Star Trek-themed hotel was once planned in Las Vegas. It was the idea of an eccentric billionaire who was a huge fan of the show and insisted that the hotel be shaped like the Enterprise. He shelved the plan after rejecting a number of design models which looked, in his words, absolutely fucking ridiculous. And number three, the classic Enterprise design almost didn't appear in Star Trek The Motion Picture. The ship underwent a number of radical redesigns during pre-production before eventually returning to the original shape. The second one, the one about Las Vegas, I'm pretty sure there's some truth in that because I remember there were plans to build a, an enormous model of the Enterprise. But I think the idea was to draw people to an area of the town that people weren't going to. So it was like off the strip in Las Vegas. They, they were trying to get people to other roads. You know what they did build off the strip in Las Vegas? Oh, what? <laughs> the World Pinball Museum. Right. Hundreds of pinball machines, all in a row, all playable, a quarter a game. And when I took Louise on holiday to Las Vegas and we spent mm. almost an entire day in there. <laughs> That's good use you, of time. You, you could just see the delight on her little face. <laughs> <laughs> so did you just play Adam's Family 2 all day? Adam's Family, Terminator 2, um, a fair few others. There was, they went all the way back to sort of the original 1920s ones up to the modern era ones. And if, you, if there's ever a reason to go off the strip, you don't need a starship. You just need quality pinball. Well, you do. I, I think do. Louise may feel differently. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we figure there's some truth in that. The first one about the transporter. I remember hearing it would be really expensive to try and land the ship. I remember reading that they couldn't work out how to make it land, rather than it being expensive. Mm. I may be confusing it with a bit about saucer separation, which they do in the pilot for Next Generation and then never touch again. Because it was a stupid idea. Well, that could be the reason. I mean, the idea is to leave all the families on the ship defenceless, basically, yes. isn't it? They do in the film, in the in the Generations film, they, they separate and crash the saucer. Mm. But also the ship's fucking massive, isn't it? Like, to land it on a small planet, it's got hundreds of people on it. It would be like landing a hotel. Yeah. Which is probably why the Las Vegas... <laughs> yeah, obviously. That's um, what he was thinking of. But certainly there is some truth to that. And also I have something about the shuttle not being ready rings a bell. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I've heard that before as well. Okay, so I think we're going to go with the third one as being the bluff. No, I just have a feeling because my Star Trek knowledge is not vast. I've watched quite a few of the films, not not really the TV series, but I just I just have this feeling that knowing you like I do, you would make up something like an eccentric billionaire. He did pretend to be an eccentric billionaire for the first three months of your relationship. <laughs> I am a billionaire. 
He has a top hat and a bag of money. <laughs> and a monocle. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know whether the third one's true or false. And I just can't ignore my gut. My gut for the third me. one, could you tell us some of the rejected designs for this <laughs> radical revisioning? Uh, sure. There, there was a spaceship, um, and then there was a different kind of spaceship. Guide. No, I've I've not seen any of the. Who, yeah, the who can argue with factual detail? Like yes. That. <laughs> so I'm, okay, I'm going. We're, we're going for the. I'm going for the third one. I'm going for the third one. Hazel's going for the I'm second. Going for the second one, yeah. The bluff is number two. <gasps> it's true that the transport was only designed for convenience's sake, and uh, the classic Enterprise design was going to be scrapped for the film, and then they couldn't think of a better one, so they stuck with it. Um, for the Star Trek-themed hotel, there's some element close to that. No one was ever crazy enough to actually want to build a hotel in the shape of the ship, because that wouldn't make any sense at all, Peter. <laughs> what happened is, in 1998, um, the Hilton Las Vegas... Peter's Googling something. If, <laughs> if it turns out that there's a hotel, I didn't know about it. In 1998, the Hilton Las Vegas opened um, a Star Trek kind experience. of museum experience. The, the Star Trek The Experience which was a kind of a museum exhibit dedicated to Star Trek, but it was not in the shape of the Enterprise, and it was within an existing hotel closed in 2008. Yes, and that's a totally different thing. I'm Googling for it now. But yeah, there so was me and Peter both remember this. Yeah. So. <laughs> Have you created this from your mind? I, this yeah, is amazing. I genuinely made this up myself. <laughs> I do know that the original series art director, Matt Jeffries, hated the updated version of the bridge in The Next Generation so much that he never watched any Star Trek again, saying that they had taken the bridge of my ship and turned it into the lobby of the Hilton, which is where I got the idea for saying <laughs> a madman wanted to build the Enterprise and turn it into a hotel. Here we are, Collider.com from 2012. There were once plans for a futuristic attraction that would have drawn Trekkies in droves. In 1992, the Las Vegas Downtown Development Competition was nearly won by the Goddard Group's plan to build a full-scale Star Trek USS Enterprise. And that shows its scale next to different buildings. Good grief. <laughs> America's messed up. <laughs> this is probably the first time it's, this has ever happened that one of our yeah. uh, bluffs is genuinely uh, and there's, true. There's some sort of uh, artwork of it. Wow. That actually looks pretty cool. You said it was rejected because it looks absolutely fucking ridiculous and that looks actually pretty awesome. That does look pretty cool. I would go to a Star Trek hotel in Andy's mind where this only existed until... <laughs> Two minutes ago. Until he was surprised to find it existed. I cannot tell a lie, even <laughs> when I try. <laughs> when have you tried to lie to me? Oh, Never to you, Hazel. <laughs> when, that's, that's got to be a lie. <laughs> when he tried to pass himself off as an eccentric billionaire. I am a billionaire. <laughs> it lasted until... So do eccentric billionaires always take people to spoons on their first date? <laughs> <laughs> and ask them to pay? It was Newcastle Arms. It was delightful. Uh, and we went to see a comedian. It was lovely. Yeah, we went to see... Dylan Moran. I was also there. I was behind, I was elsewhere in the same room. Yeah, I don't think I've ever told you this story. But John, <laughs> oh, we're gonna tell, are we going to tell this story? Are you not aware of this story? John, John, and yeah, Louise, were, John and Louise were on our first date because we realised we were both going to the same gig at the same time. So I asked John to pretend not to know me. So that you could spy, so that in case I was a creepy weirdo. So she didn't have to admit to knowing John, that's the reason. Mm. Yeah. No, oh, I, thank you. I didn't ask John to be there uh, for a protection. I had, I had mace for that. <laughs> you still do, though. I, I know this. So to avoid um, introducing you to one of my best friends on our first date. And thus putting you off. Yeah. I did stand I behind your head doing that. 
Going, you're in there, mate. You're in there, mate, I'm making obscene gestures for yeah. the entire show. John just made a gesture that you can see if you watch the film uh, Jerry Maguire. I saw Hazel walk past in the interval. Yeah. I think that's all I saw. All right. But you um, wouldn't I, know who of the assembled throng was the No. The lucky fella. Well, lucky's a <laughs> adjective. You I was trying to say it without an air of sarcasm in my voice and I couldn't manage it. <laughs> Oh, hang on. I, I am lucky. Yes. <laughs> slightly too slow there. <laughs> so it's uh, time to debate a nerd a nerd debater. We're going to have a, a bit of a debate. There's been some news in the last week or so that two new actors are being considered for the role of Batman. Those are Nicholas Holt and Robert Pattinson. So we thought we'd go back over the archives and think about who our own favourite Batmans have been. Batman. Batman <laughs> have been. And yeah, have a, have a debate around that topic. Yeah, so I think if we go chronologically maybe through the, the various actors that have portrayed Batman on screen and see what we think of them. Beginning, of course, with possibly people's favourite Batman. I'm talking, of course, of Lewis G. Wilson <laughs> from the 1943 Columbia serial Batman. Not no seen that idea. one. <laughs> no idea? I've seen pictures and his pants look fairly stupid. He he has a, the belt basically around the middle of his chest and he's, he's a slightly more rotund character. Than, <laughs> yeah. More fat man than Batman. Indeed. Um, if you actually want to catch up with that, then that serial is on Amazon Prime at the moment. Have you watched any? I watched the first episode. I grew up just on the cusp of when they were still showing... The old matinee serials on Channel 4 on a Sunday morning. Mm, like Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So the first two Batmans were sort of 15-part serials in the 1940s. Very, very close, actually, to the comic books of the time. What neither of them have uh, any of the rogues gallery. It's just Batman versus, I think the second one might be a little bit racist. I think there might be some bad Japanese stereotypes in there. Mm-hmm. What you haven't got is any of that world building that we get from the subsequent Batman films. Am I safe to guess I'm probably the only person that's seen either of those? Oh, yeah. God, yeah. (laughs) Moving on rapidly, Mr. West. My Uh, favourite. (laughs) The mayor of Quahog from Family Guy. So this is possibly the furthest away from what we think of as Batman. Yeah, it's a weird thing because you could argue he almost hindered it being adapted. Because mm-hmm. it took so long for people to take Batman seriously after it. But one of the reasons for that is because he was so successful doing it for a very short period of time, because it was only a year or two. It's massive. Mm-hmm. He did the role for ages. Uh, he didn't. Yes. It was three, three years. It was three series and a film which came out between the first and second series. So he's only playing it for three years. Mm-hmm. I read um, he returned to the role many times in animated form yeah. over five decades. Yeah, because he made Return of the Cape Crusaders yeah. like two or three years ago. And there, were, there was an animated Batman series in the 70s, which he did the voice for. Mm-hmm. Um, the Return of the Cape Crusaders was a live action one in the late 90s. That's Return to the Batcave. So yeah, which was like half biopic. Yeah, that was a strange one. So the, he and Bruce Ward, who played uh, Robin, went and visited these characters, you know, like the actress who played Catwoman and things, wasn't it? It was, mm-hmm. it was a weird mix of reality and mm-hmm. very strange indeed. Return the Cape Crusaders was the, the animated, sort of animated 1966 Batman. And Batman and Two-Face, which was a sequel to that with William Shatner as Two-Face. The only sad thing with that is it's Adam West so clearly, but you can also hear the age in his voice. Yeah. And he really sounds really creaky when he's saying some of the lines like, get to the Batcave. <laughs> so for me, this was my first 
exposure to Batman. My and first one as well. Again, the Saturday Saturday morning TV, and I absolutely loved it as a kid. And I didn't realise how funny it was as a yeah. kid. For me, I was just mm-hmm. enjoying this action and adventure. You never know when you're going to need shock repellent, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> when you watch it as an adult, it's a really funny, clever TV series. I, I really enjoyed it. I think I've mentioned before the uh, example they used to explain the way the scripts work to people, where Batman and Robin turn up in the Batmobile outside and run into a big event in their costumes. And the guy says, shall I introduce you, sir? And they say, no, we don't want don't to be conspicuous. <laughs> It reminds me a lot, almost as a precursor to things like Naked Gun mm. yeah. or Airplane, in which you've got this ridiculous situation, but the actors are playing it very, very straight. Yeah, There's a memorable scene where he's running around with a circular bomb, which mm-hmm. is obviously how they used to look with a spark on the top of it, going, there's never a good time to dispose of a bomb. Almost certainly with bomb written on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you feel it held back Batman for years? Because it was a long time between that and the Burton movies. And it was only 20 years, oddly enough. So I think the TV says finished in 69 and the film came out in 89. Yeah, but I mean, the last 20 years, how many Batman films have we had? Far too many. So yeah, actually, yeah, we've gone from one to lots. It probably did hinder it because it made Batman in the public consciousness a joke. I don't know if that... Well, that is true. what everyone was saying before the movie came out. The mm-hmm. Burton movie changed everyone's perception of Batman was going to be, and the fact they'd cast a comedian in it as well. Well, yeah, the expectations for the Tim Burton film were incredibly high. When Michael Keaton was cast, there was huge, huge outrage, and they didn't have the internet back then, so like the studio got... So who did they have to complain to? The studio got like thousands and thousands and thousands of, of letters complaining about this comedy actor. Expectations must have been really, really high, so I don't know if I subscribe to the theory that Adam West, Batman put people off putting it on the big screen for that It just put a very specific idea in their heads, Mm -hmm. I think. Would that have Mm -hmm. been unique to Batman, though? I think um, the the campy, um, non-serious idea would have been applied to most superheroes, wouldn't it? Certainly from 60s, 70s. Superman never really had the same characterisation. It was never a joke in quite the same way. Until Superman 3. (laughs) (laughs) Arguably. As we will find out in a future episode. So we've kind of already moved on to Michael Keaton, who is my personal favourite. Yeah. You talk about the controversy that this was a guy who was a comedian. Best known for Beetlejuice, probably mm-hmm. at that point. And not really what people expected, or particularly the people that expected a big, dark, serious Batman. One of the executive producers admitted that he was really, really angry about casting Michael Keaton. And he said to Tim Burton, what's the post? They're going to say that Mr. Mom is Batman. Oh, yeah, of <laughs> if there's some argument over who is the best Batman, I think there can be no argument that Michael Keaton is the best Bruce Wayne. I think he is perfect in that role. People underestimate the importance of playing the Bruce Wayne character, maybe. Once you're in that rubber-moulded suit with a mask over your face, it could almost be anybody being Batman. I think yeah. 90% of the time yeah. it fully is a stuntman. Batman. That's all you got to do. Mm-hmm. Well, Batman is definitely a package deal and it's, it's, it's dichotomy and you've got to play Bruce Wayne as a complete counterpoint to Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's very important and if he's just Batman, boring. I kind of got the sociopath aspect of Batman very well with Michael Keaton. Mm. Yeah. As Bruce Wayne, he was clearly slightly unhinged. The only thing about those movies, um, I do love them and I think Michael Keaton does a terrific job, but I get the feeling that Tim Burton was more interested in the villains Mm -hmm. than he was in Batman himself. Definitely. And the later movies had the problem of just putting far too many villains in. 
which overshadowed Batman too much. And then they were also increasing Batman's team by adding in Robin yeah. and adding mm-hmm. in Batgirl. And it was just too crowded. It's a problem that I have with Christian Bale's Batman as well. It feels like Batman is a side character to his own movie and that the villains are, are more interesting. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's. It, I was yeah. watching Batman Begins this morning and a few things were interesting. One was that there's Bruce Wayne in his suit. And Bruce Wayne, who's this sort of mad character before he gets rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. And they're quite distinct characters. There's like three levels to his portrayal in a way. I watched Batman Returns this morning, or the first chunk of Batman Returns. Although Michael Keaton is great in it, that is a film that really sidelines the yeah. Batman character. You know, you've got between Catwoman and Penguin and Max Shrek. That's probably the one that is most guilty of in being more interested in the villains than the, the heroes. After Michael Keaton, it's fair to say there's a there's a drop. <laughs> yes. Mr. Kilmer. Mr. Kilmer. I don't remember a single thing about Val Kilmer. He was just weird, dull. Weird lips. <laughs> Suppose so. He did not want to be in that film. Apparently Terrible. He, he really didn't get on with the director. Joel Schumacher, no. I mean, it, I feel a bit sorry for Joel Schumacher having Val Kilmer and Tommy Lee Jones to deal with yeah. in the same movie. Surely um, he was involved in the casting. <laughs> yeah, but I, I have heard that the last take of Batman Forever, Joel Schumacher said, cut right now, get that bastard off my set. <laughs> referring to uh, Kilmer. Mm-hmm. Kilmer around that time was a lot of trouble. The Invalid Dr. Moreau film as well, he was an absolute nightmare on. But Tommy Lee Jones also apparently was very, very hard work and he was really rude towards Jim Carrey. I think Jim Carrey's talked uh, about this in inter- interviews subsequently. Yes. I can't remember exactly what he said to him, but apparently in a restaurant, he came up to Jim Carrey and said something along the lines of, I cannot abide your tomfoolery, mm-hmm. something like that. Do real people talk like that? Surely that's a line from a film somewhere. That's a great line. I kind of want to get away from not talking about the film so much, but talking about the, the character. But in this case, it's very difficult because Val Kilmer's dull in a very dull film. <laughs> But again, it's surrounded by caricatures. And there's maybe an argument that your Batman is the linchpin and you've got to have Batman, as much as you can, a man dressed in rubber fighting crime, <laughs> the central linchpin in which all this craziness can go on mm. around. So you need that central character to be a little bit more bland almost. Otherwise, you've just got a film entirely cast with crazes. Maybe the one thing missing from his performance was bat nipples. Which come as we go towards George Clooney and mm. those infamous bat nipples. Nineteen ninety seven, Batman and Robin. Bat buttocks. <laughs> bat credit card at one point. Yes, yes, that's true. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I've got a soft spot for Batman and Robin because it came out in ninety seven, so I was twelve years old and was allowed to go to the cinema with my friends rather than like my parents. So um ninety seven was a big year for going to the cinema. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know any better, so I quite liked it at the time. But a few more viewings, I've corrected my argument. <laughs> I'd like to see George Clooney do it now because he seems like an ideal actor for the part. Yet it went just so terribly wrong. I mean, in both cases, Joel Schumacher is the current link. Mm. Now, he's had great films under his belt, like Lost Boys. But you've got to think it's the director's fault, surely, in those two. Mm-hmm. Do you know, he got a great performance out of Arnold. Best ever. <laughs> I love Arnold Schwarzenegger, and that film is dreadful, but filled with little specks of gold all over the place when he comes up with his dreadful yeah. puns. Mm-hmm. No, it's just terrible in all counts. I still see you. What killed the dinosaurs? <laughs> the Ice Age. <laughs> Dan just goes, Oh, well, actually, um, <laughs> it was more likely to be a cataclysmic uh, meteor. 
so after that, we have a, a little bit of a break. Mm-hmm. And in 2005, is it that... Mr. Bale appears. My choice for best Batman. Mm. Did you see that before the other films? Or? No, the first one I saw was, was um, Batman, the first one with Michael Keaton. And I do like him but i've felt that i don't know i was probably too young to get a proper understanding of the film so i didn't form a full attachment with him but i did watch the joel schumacher ones and didn't really like them too much and have a bit of nostalgia for them now because i like stupidity (laughs) so i think the christian bale ones were probably the the first ones that i watched with an expectation of seeing a good film and uh, i think he's a very talented actor what you mentioned before is he has effectively three levels. He has Batman, he has um, Bruce Wayne, but real Bruce Wayne, who's effectively Batman without his mask on. And then, of course, the, um, the, the false face that he puts on in, in public to be the playboy Bruce Wayne. I like that very much. I think it's probably a bit of a cliche to say, but which is his real face? Is it Batman or is it Bruce Wayne? And clearly with, with Christian Bale, Batman is his true face. And you get this sense that he's the same character under the mask as he is not under the mask, the thing I think that Bale has over Keaton is he just he looks more like a grown man to me. He looks more like he'd go out and kick some ass. Maybe it's Michael Keaton's fluffy hair that <laughs> has put me off. But Christian Bale, I just, I just buy into him fully. So what do you think to a potential of Robert Pattinson taking on the role? He kicks some ass? Robert Pattinson is 17 years old. He can't be Batman. <laughs> Though that said, Nicholas Holt looks pretty boyish as well. Mm. And I, I really like Nicholas Holt in a few movies I've seen him in. Don't really see him as Batman, but you never know. Loads well, of, everyone was, said that about Michael Keaton. He was a vampire, so of course he's going to turn into a bat. <laughs> well, Robert Pattinson is 33 and Christian Bale was 31 when he <laughs> took on the role of Batman. So age, not really a factor, but I think Christian Bale to me has always looked 40. Even when he's like 19, mm-hmm. he's looked for. Have you seen Empire of the Sun when he's um, 12. 12 or something? Yeah. Uh, no, I think the first thing I saw him in was uh, Little Women, mm. which is in the mm-hmm. 90s. I think he must have been a late teenager at that point. I think point. American Psycho for me, which right. is basically him playing the same role. He certainly plays Batman and public Bruce Wayne, very similar to the Patrick Bateman character in American Psycho. In the Dark Knight, that's in my top five films of all time. Tremendous. I wouldn't say it's because of Christian Bale's Batman. It's because of Heath Ledger's yeah. Joker, but also mm-hmm. Gary Oldman as well. I think he's the heart of the film. Christian Bale is not quite the top just because he doesn't command my attention in his own film. Mm-hmm. That's another case of Batman getting sidelined in his own movie. The film's not even about Batman, is it? You've got a bit with his girlfriend dying, so he's obviously an important part of the film. He's reacting to everything. Yeah. yeah. The film for me is about the corruption of Harvey Dent. Yes. Does a good man have his limits? Yeah, yeah, it feels like you could take Batman out of that film and make that film without Batman. I, yeah, I agree. So who do you think might be better, Holt or Pattinson? Can you say we've completely missed out wooden Batman? This is how dull and how much we've tried to block these oh, films. Ben Affleck. Oh, Ben Affleck. All right, Affleck. no, sorry, yeah, we should yeah, go there. Yeah. Let's go to Batfleck. <laughs> Batfleck. Who, Sadfleck. Again, I think might be a good actor ill-served by the mm. films that he's in. Nope. No, I've seen. Bad actor. Be, I have seen him be good in one or two things. I just can't think what they are now. He's <laughs> quite good in Gone Girl, where he plays a yes. smarmy yeah, he person. But the thing with Gone Girl is you're never quite sure whether he murdered her or not, and you can't tell by looking at his blank, inscrutable face. And I'm not sure whether that's good acting or bad acting. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I know it's possibly aged badly and Frank Miller has become a weird right-wing asshole, but The Dark Knight Returns was my Batman comic book that I liked as a teenager. Yeah. That idea of an older, grizzled Batman was something I was really Mm. looking forward to. Yeah. And I was so disappointed that we didn't get that. We were talking about this before and you were saying you wished you could see Michael Keaton as an old, grizzled, Logan-style Batman. I would love to see that. So you've only seen Justice League with Batfleck? Yeah. I don't know how much of this is Joss Whedon coming in and re-editing, but there was a backlash, I think, towards the darkness of Batman versus Superman. Affleck tried to create, to some extent, that Dark Knight Returns kind of tortured character. So you've got a, a shot, I think, of Robin's uniform suggesting that Robin had been killed by the Joker, which is a the famous comic book storyline. And also conflicted about what Superman did and the, the death that Superman caused at the end of Man of Steel. So you have got some interesting character development there that could have gone somewhere. But because there was such a negative reaction, I think, to the grimness of Batman v Superman, by the time Justice League comes around, they just dumped all that and it's a completely different character. I don't think there's another example of the character being played by the same actor but being retooled to such an extent Mm. that he's making quips and he's putting a team together and I think you can tell in Justice League that Affleck isn't happy about that. The character that he wanted to create has been taken away from him and now he's just another generic superhero character which explains probably why he is not the Batman Mm. in the forthcoming Batman. He was going to write that at one point. Then he was just going to write and star then now he's gone completely. As is Cavill. I think the best Batman is yet to come. I don't think it's been done completely justice mm-hmm. in terms of the actual character. Whether that's Holt or Pattinson, I don't know, but um, I think there's potential there. Yeah, Maybe that's why it keeps being remade, because everyone knows there's something there, and something we're still there. striving for that ultimate Batman. Nah, it keeps getting remade because there's money to be made. <laughs> I yeah. don't think it's an artistic end. Oh, you're so cynical. <laughs> <laughs> so just quickly, um, John, your favourite Batman is? Michael Keaton. Peter? Michael Keaton. Christian Bale. I'm the only one who's gone for Adam West. Mm. I do like Adam West. Yeah. Adam is great in that TV series, but that TV series isn't the Batman that I would consider to be Batman. I went for that one, not only for nostalgic reasons, because it's the first one I saw, but he's the only one who actually manages to be the star of his own movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Those were our choices for our favourite Batman, but we would love to know what you think on this topic. So tweet us at NerdFestUK and let us know who your favourite portrayal of Batman is. Okay, John, what quiz have you got for us? I have a very special quiz for you about right-wing Christian movie websites. (laughs) Right, okay. Good Lord. So if you... Go on the internet, you will find specific review sites that look at films from a particular point of view. For example, are there booms in it, as we talked about earlier? <laughs> some websites, for some reason, are upset about the idea of booms in films or pretty much anything in films. So, this is a website from a Christian conservative point of view as to whether you should see a film or not and whether a film is suitable for your children. I have a selection of reviews from this website and I would like you from the review to tell me what film is being reviewed. Okay. Sounds fun. Some films may be mentioned more than once, I will say. Number one. An edited version of this movie could be great for kids and adults alike. 
the language in it is too pervasive even for me to want to watch it with my wife without it being edited. Although there is smoking and drinking, it is totally different from The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, The Hobbit? Nope. Can't see how that could be. Got to be some sort of fantasy thing if they're mentioning The Lord I, of the Rings. I suspect that's a misdirect. Unless it's like The Two Towers. Can you tell us whether that is a complete misdirect? That's a complete misdirection. Yeah. It'll be something like, I don't know, Pulp Fiction or something. And he was just relating it to the last thing he watched last week. Well, good for kids as well. Pulp Fiction's got several... <laughs> well, yeah, I know, it was a random just have example. to say Gimp Mask and I think... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you well, edit out all the naughtiness fun. from Pulp Fiction, then you're left with nothing. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm just going to take a wild punt and say uh, Ace Ventura. Nope. Can we have a clue? There's not actually that many clues. Uh, it's a popular film from the 1980s. Mm, how about something we don't consider to be sweary, like Back to the Future? That is the correct answer. Ah, ah. Well done. So the incest's all right then? Apparently so. They don't have a problem with the incest, the bad language and the smoking and the drinking. Not suitable for that man's wife. A young boy mistakenly kisses his older brother's girlfriend and there is a scene where the band of boys try frantically to re-glue a broken phallus onto a statue. The older female character wears a short tennis skirt throughout the movie and there are climbing scenes where you can see her underwear. <laughs> oh, God. In fact, I feel like, the priest like, tossing off to the keyboard while he was writing. It's that. like the worst pervert in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I have seen a film where they accidentally break the cock off a statue and try to glue it back on, but I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> no, I mean, at first I was thinking of something like Stand By Me. And I yeah. couldn't think why it was just a group of like the, kids the band thing. of yeah. yeah kisses his it? older. Um, no, that, again, that's too weird. Uh, we've got to think more innocent films, I think, than mm. things we don't consider as sweary or over. Yeah, these the are line. all relatively tame, tame films that you would not have a problem yeah. taking your kids to see if you were normal. Mm -hmm. There's quite a few clues in there. I think you've got the band of boys trying to reglue the. Broken phallus. You've got the older female character in a short tennis skirt. It wouldn't be American Pie or something like that. Mm, no, uh, we need to think more innocent. Mm. Frozen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't get the statue reference. Uh, the answer is the Goonies. Um. Not seen it many years. <laughs> that would explain it. I wouldn't let any child come near this film. It's blatantly sexist, promoting extremely vile and unhealthy ideas about the male gender, teaching boys and men to value their lives less than that of girls and women. Women and children are being rescued first. Men are vilified. Women and children are being rescued first. Men are vilified for saving themselves, and the main protagonists makes the ultimate sacrifice for a woman with her not even so much as batting an eyelash. The film teaches viewers that it's okay, and in fact natural, for men to die in order for women to live. Wow. And there what was, a twat. There was room on that door, to be honest. No, they tried it, and they both it sank in the, under the weight of both of them. So he gallantly uh, let her live and persuaded her to go all the adventures and die an old old lady warm in her bed. Do I have to quit the entire film? <laughs> <laughs> no, please don't. And the guy that he's referencing, Bruce Ismay, was the owner of the White Star Line and took up a space that was meant for a uh, someone else. So it's not even factually accurate. No. As a... 
complaint. No. Are you ready for the next one? Mm-hmm. We see a man and a woman kissing each other with her back against the wall. The scene then cuts to the next morning where the two are lying on a couch beside each other. All clothes are on. The woman says later on in the movie, I even slept with you. We also see a painting of a naked woman very briefly several times. We see everything. There is also a painting of a man and a woman. We see the man's naked rear. He appears to be engaged with the woman. We can only see her head and shoulders, but she appears to be naked. This painting gets a lot of screen time, but from a safe distance. When you first said, like, um, a man and a woman kissing against a wall, I, th- I thought Spider-Man. Close. Oh. Spider-Man 2? <laughs> no. Superman. Spider-Man 3? No. You're in the right area. Paintings. Um... Um, Batman. Yeah, it's Batman, correct. Mm. They were obviously appalled by the sequence in an art gallery. Oh. oh, right, okay. Presumably they were rooting the Joker on when he was defacing <laughs> all of the art. <laughs> yeah, next one. Two more. I would never let my kids watch it. Would Sigourney Weaver let her kids watch this movie? I doubt it. Unless she's completely depraved, she would be totally embarrassed. Working girl. The reason Jodie Foster made the movie Nim's Island is so that her kids could watch a movie that she was in. She wouldn't let them watch her other movies. Even she has better standards for her kids, and she grew up in Hollywood where anything goes. (laughs) (laughs) Ghostbusters? That is Ghostbusters, correct. (laughs) And the final one. I just put this in because this just disturbed me. It takes a lot to disturb (laughs) you. I was sitting behind my 16-year-old son at the preview of this movie years ago and was extremely embarrassed at the nudity and sex scenes. The sex scene didn't have to be graphic to be totally inappropriate. I left and went to the restroom. The rest of the movie was totally ruined for me and I have not and will never see it again. Shame on James Cameron. It could have been such a good movie without those offensive scenes which were, in my opinion, completely gratuitous. Titanic. That is Titanic again, (laughs) yes. So what have we learnt? Uh, The Christian writer full of shite. That's a, that's a nice poem there. Yeah. Thank you. We can we make apo- a t-shirt for that. <laughs> we apologise to our Christian rights listeners. Listener. No, we don't. <laughs> stop listening immediately. <laughs> I'm guessing they probably you. stopped listening a long time ago. I think Hazel won that. I think we have two points. No, I think Peter, I think Peter, we've got at least two. Uh, we'll call it a draw. Uh, your reward is to go onto the website and write the most sarcastic fake review you can. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Can we do that? <laughs> Anyone who wants to tweet us a review we should go and post on there, please do that. Yeah, the worst review of the most innocent film we can think of. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest episode. Thank you very much indeed for listening. We will be back very, very shortly. But if you would like to leave us a review on iTunes and maybe a rating. Uh, John, what are you going to do for the listeners who are going to do that for us? I will personally give each and every one of them a big kiss. There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it from us. And you have been listening to... A man dressed in rubber punching a clown in the face. A man with his underpants outside his trousers. <laughs> Just Andy Chandler. <laughs> who is both the previous... <laughs> <laughs> I'm the woman who takes Andy's pants off. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see you in a couple of weeks.
An edited version of this movie could be great for kids and adults alike. In my opinion, the language in it is too perversive even for me to want to watch it with my wife without it being edited. Sorry, can you say that again? And it's pervasive. Pervasive, what did I say? From the sentence, I, I imagine it should have been perverse. Perver- per- perversive. No, he said the bad language was pervasive, ah, which okay. means it's everywhere. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. yeah. Pervers- per- pervasive. Yeah. Pervasive. Mm-hmm. Okay. In my opinion, the language in it is too pervasive. 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 In my opinion, the language in it is too pervasive. Oh, fuck's sake, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> now it's in my head that I can't say it. Yeah, I bet you can still do nominative determinism mm-hmm. there. In my opinion, the language in it is too pervasive. Oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> the language in I, it. I've just broken John. <laughs>